What's up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast, and I'm here with an old friend, teammate, and classmate, Joel Smith. What's going on, Joel? Not much, man. Just got off of work. <laughs> Excited to talk to you, buddy. Awesome. So, you may not even know this, but you were actually my first exposure to strength and conditioning. So, at little old Cedarville University, I remember... Um, I was in a freshman level class. I think it was like intro to health professions. And I think you were a junior or senior. I think you were a little late to that class. And we had a project that we had to work on together. I think we did something about creatine. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the prof was not exactly thrilled about it. I think she thought it was like steroids or something like that. Yes. But you know, um, no, I think the first creatine I ever took may have had steroids in it because it works <laughs> well. I don't know. I would be surprised if it would have had something in it. They snuck. So. Oh man, that's hilarious. But I remember going to going to your dorm room, and you were like, "Hey, let's look up stuff on uh, in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research." And I was like, "What is that?" Like, what? And so you were like opening my eyes to what the NSCA was. And before that, I had absolutely no idea. And I wasn't hearing that from anybody else at Cedarville. So you're kind of like, (laughs) you were my intro into this whole thing. So I really appreciate it. Just wanted to let you know. Well, hey, yeah, I guess you never, sometimes you never realize who you are, I guess, opening up to new avenues of information. So I'm glad that found you. I, I mean, it's funny because ironically, at the time that that was happening, I think I had gone through strength and conditioning internships where I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like, I want to do track. <laughs> so, we'll circle back. So, here yes. we go. Yeah. So, th- I wanted to be a track coach as well. And I am I work with track athletes, but I'm not not exactly a track coach per se. So, um, so yeah. Let's give people a quick rundown. So, after that, um, after Cedarville like what what was your career path after that or 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 uh academic path I sure guess, uh yeah academic path um i could say a lot about academics in the sense of just i i, I say okay oh wow you have a master's degree in exercise but my first job people always say oh you have a, a master's degree in x phys like you must know x y and z i'm like i didn't learn anything from but <laughs> <laughs> yeah i that being said, I, I think I went to, I tried to go to a place that I knew I'd be positioned to have good experiences, which was Wisconsin Lacrosse. So after Cedarville, I, I got my master's at Wisconsin Lacrosse, uh, which was, it was really a great, beautiful place to study and learn and really good, you know, good people there. And so I spent time working in the biomechanics lab as a graduate assistant. So we, which I know as per what we're going to be doing in our conversation, there was the focus of research was um, female ACL tears particularly so all the factors that went into that so we had like a six camera seventy five hundred thousand dollars setup and actually that's not even that much money back then it seemed like a lot of money but now i'm like eh. <laughs> uh, so i was doing that uh and then i was also an assistant coach on the track team working with high jump eventually got into decathlon uh while i was there and i, I wanted to go there because i knew they had a good track team and i think that i knew that's where i wanted to initially head and yeah and then masters in applied sports science did a thesis in the biomechanics lab on, on depth jump type stuff. And then that led me into the wonderful career world, which I am now uh, 11 
12 years strong into. Nice. So after after grad school, tell us about your uh, your job at uh, was it Wilmington? Yeah, Wilmington College. So yes. I remember at Cedarville, it's like, hey, there's this college 30 minutes away called Wilmington, but I knew nothing about it. Um, so, I, I mean, we didn't even, I think we had one meet there my freshman year. And so I, it was really fortunate that I got that job because I, I felt like I was a little entitled in terms of, I'm like, okay, you get the bachelor's degree, you get the master's degree, you're going to get a job. And then I found out very quickly that was not the case. Uh, <laughs> I and all these, I would really put all my work in these cover letters and re- and all this stuff and really research these jobs and track jobs and stuff I thought I for sure would at least get an interview for and got nothing. And, but eventually it worked out where I did eventually getting an assistant job at Wilmington College initially as a track coach. And then eventually I was um, doing courses in their like sports science and health departments so teaching strength and conditioning and biomechanics and, and which that was really cool. Here I am like, coaching track. I'm doing courses and, and it was it was a very diverse job and it was a good entry point for me because I was still at a point of extreme you know, career immaturity <laughs> and it was just it, it was a really good place to be mentored early on get my feet wet and start to really just understand a little bit more about everything not just the human body but everything and so that was it man that was that was Wilmington College I spent four years there that's awesome yeah I remember uh after you you kind of left Cedarville to to go do your master's work and then you came back I was like oh my goodness like he's only 30 minutes away so I remember seeing you at quite a few meets and um yeah you were around campus every once in a while so that was pretty cool it was good good seeing you back yeah haven't been back back since I left but (laughs) it was around yes yeah well it was good for me personally to see like oh okay like at that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to blaze my own trail. There's nobody that I know of who's doing anything uh, to to combine, like, the strength and conditioning side with the sport performance side or, like, the actual athletic, whatever sport it may be, to, to try to combine all of these different aspects. And so it was really good for me to see somebody doing that, somebody that I knew. So that was pretty cool for me. Anyway, um, so somewhere in that time period, you started up your website. So tell us a little bit about Just Fly Sports and kind of how that got started. And and that's really morphed into like a serious, uh, uh, what should I say? It's a huge den of knowledge is what it is. Sure. Uh, yeah, so... That was, I I feel like it's one of those things where they, I came from a household where it's like the mentality is you go to school, you go to college, you get a job, and you work at that job for X, Y, Z and get X paycheck. And mm-hmm. I think I, and I look at who I am really, I think I definitely have a heart of an entrepreneur. I just never, and I always... I've always loved writing. Like I've been writing ever since I was 23, 24, grad school. I always felt like, well, I have all these ideas and thoughts on training. I've, I, I realize, and enough, I've talked to enough people where I realize I've had this just desire and passion, and just turned over just pure training for so long. I mean, I was when I was eight, I was like reading kids magazines with some special guest person interview as an 800 runner, and she's like. 
you need to lift your knees higher, which actually that's kind of bull. Uh, but I was trying it on the playground and to try to run faster. Like when I was playing tag, you know, like what eight-year-old does that? Okay, and so <laughs> that I've had this, this, these old, and I feel like I've always had a good barometer with what's good training and not, and 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 all these ideas. And so I feel like I wanted to get start writing early, and I, and so I've been doing that. And then I was, it was about three years into Wilmington. It's just I felt like I just finally needed to put my money where my mouth was. I've always said, well, I'm going to turn this into a website. And I just I finally did. I, I, I partnered with uh, Jake Clark, who's uh, all the back end stuff on Just Fly Sports, who's a javelin thrower for me. And so that's everything you see today. And as soon as that happened, it was like someone lit a new fire in my butt. I was staying up. I was working on that from like 8 to midnight, 9 to midnight. All the time. <laughs> the energy. And I think the the thing I was super excited about was this sense of, you know, you, you work in Division Three college athletics, and it's like, okay, I'm going to make this little, very little money to recruit my butt off. And that recruiting is the primary success driver. And then you also think in context of what is, what are these athletes getting out of this? What's the graduation rate? Where are they ending up? Is this ethical? Ethical, ethical what I'm doing? And so it was a, lot of, it was a really good fuel uh, for me initially. And thankfully, it's still going today. And I, I you know, hopefully, I could say it's helped a lot of people. So, well, I, I think right along the same lines of, of what you were saying about how, like, you're a writer. Like, that was, um, that was right around the same time where I kind of started a little blog. And uh, one time I was back home in Ohio and decided to stop in at an indoor meet at Cedarville. And I think you were there. And so um, maybe it was, uh, it was like one of those things for uh, Coach Scott's retirement or one of his many retirements because sure. <laughs> he made quite yeah. a few comebacks. But uh, yeah. so we ran in, into each other there and I... Uh, we were talking, you know, a little shop and, um, you had mentioned maybe me doing a little bit of, of nutrition writing. Cause that was kind of at the time my focus. And so like, I, I love writing as well. So that was huge for me to have a platform where I could put up some articles and I've put up, a, I think a few, a decent amount, um, on your oh, yeah. website so that's been great i've really enjoyed writing for you citrulline mallet article i think is still top top five or top ten on the year and all nice. top pages <laughs> awesome i'm glad to hear that that's cool i'll uh i'll have to shoot you over my new book once it's uh once it's done it's all about calculating your calorie needs and and how calories are like your body's currency and if you want to be able to pay for adaptation or if you want to save up for something like that's it kind of all comes down to that so um yeah i think you i think you'd appreciate it i think you'd get a kick out of it so um all that to say uh so you're working at wilmington at what point did you kind of transition away from there and head to your current position tell us a little bit about that yeah, so uh, strength and conditioning called me back. And now I was doing strength and conditioning. I mentioned I was teaching classes. So I was obviously for the track coach, you are the high performance manager. You do the weights for your team. Um, and I think that's probably the best situation for the most part, unless you just really don't care about weights, which anyways, a little different topic. But I was doing, I was doing this, the strength and conditioning for the basketball team. And I worked with a variety of other sports. And I was also coordinating the interns at Wilmington that wanted to 
um, excuse me, uh, be uh, strength coaches. So I, I was creating that curriculum. So I was still really involved in strength and conditioning, but I never had, like, I never had formal S. I mean, my intern, I just, I did the worst, not the worst internship. It was, I mean, it was fine. It was a good dude who ran it, but I did not do a good job in my Cedarville internship in trying to find something that was really specific. I did like the small, there was like the small, like six week internships you had to do there. You had to do like two little ones and one big one. Mm-hmm. My two little ones I did, I did, I spent time at Wright State, which actually really turned me off of strength conditioning. I'm like, what is this? Like, it's just like, <laughs> screaming and athletes and nothing, and no like thought process at all. And I was like, oh, if this is it, I don't really want to do this. And so I, uh, anyways, needless to say, I started just fly sports. That caught some traction uh, in the sense that one of the track coaches there was reading my uh, articles, and they had been through the track team had been through strength coaches, kind of like pop, pop, pop. And it's a high turnover. Track and field strength and conditioning is always, almost always, the bottom rung, because it's always the sport that most of the track coaches want to do their own program, anyways, as they should. Um, the best track coaches always have their own strength program because they understand how everything fits together and they it, it goes it goes beyond just um work on the track and so i but I, I i jumped at that because i was i'm thinking okay you know what i my dream was always just to be just be a d1 assistant jumps coach you know like for a long time it was until i started just by sports i guess you could say i realized you can kind of create your own adventure in life um i, I guess and which is so freeing and when do you just think well, if I work really hard, maybe I'll be a D1 assistant making, going from making nothing to making just next to nothing, you know, depending <laughs> on where you go. But then being your butt off and being gone this weekend, I mean, not to say that's bad. I mean, I think I would enjoy, I would, I would enjoy that job, but there's, there's pros and cons to everything. But I, um, so anyways, strength and conditioning called me back and I, so I took the job there cause I just, I was like, you know what, this is what it takes to go D1. I'm going to make the jump. And even if it's just the strength for track and field, I'll do it, and I also work with tennis. Um, a few years later into that, I actually ended up dropping track, and I took on aquatics there, which mm-hmm. they at uh, Kelly have a, a very fantastic aquatics program. Many national champions and Olympians, fantastic coaches, and so I'm working with aquatics and water polo now, and um, men's tennis can, still. Can we say the name of the school, or is that? Yeah, yeah, it's Cal UC Berkeley. Yeah. UC Berkeley. Yeah, it's a big deal, man. Yeah, some, some, yeah, some yeah, smart people good. there, and some decent athletes too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a <laughs> great, it's a very different place than um, it's very different than some of my um, I guess previous employment, if you will. But it's it's you realize um, yeah, it's just good to have. I feel like my experience has been diverse, so it's it's I, I appreciate all the people I've worked with and all the athletes and the diversity that it all brings forth. Awesome. So that that kind of catches us up. So. Um, one of the posts that uh, you put up on, I, I saw it on Instagram. Uh, it was probably, what, maybe a month or two ago? Yeah. Um, but I was like, all right, this is, this is one of those unique and nuanced posts that somebody who's brand new to the industry or somebody who doesn't care about having an open mind and learning is going to see this and be like, uh... They're just gonna keep scrolling. They're not gonna appreciate it. So not, I was like, the swipe generation. They did not, did not, did not correctly create attention. <laughs> that one. Exactly. So um, as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is perfect. Um, 
I got to get Joel on to to really to to dive a little bit deeper into this just so I can. Um, I think I know where he's going with these, but to make sure, let's bring him on. Let's talk about it. So, um, so you kind of and you titled that post five dogmatic coaching principles that still exist in strength and conditioning. Um, so we'll just kind of jump through these one by one. So tell us a little bit about the idea of, um, well, like here's the concept it's, and it's still prevalent. You're right. You have to squat through your heels. So when, when is that appropriate? When, when is that not appropriate? Uh, tell us your perspective on that. Yeah, man. All right. So yeah, that's, uh, excuse me. So it's funny you mentioned that, that that post actually did decently, but I, 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 I had a post today that is probably the worst performing post that I've ever had because <laughs> the first line of text, if I actually read the text was basically, you got your athletes stronger and faster, but you still lost the game. Now what? Fergus mm. Carling, Cameron Johnson. Basically it's just like, here, here's how to look at everything. Tactics, psychological, technical, um, I just think a lot of people don't want to hear that if your job is just to get athletes fast. <laughs> um, but there's so much we can learn from it. Anyways, neither here nor there. Squatted through the heels. Okay. So a lot of stuff that I find personal interest in, I, I learned the hard way myself. And if I learn it myself, it piques my interest. And then I really start to – I as soon as I get on something, I really dig in. So like when I wrote my last book, Speed Strength, and that book was supposed to be done in a few months, and it was done in three years because every single chapter – has to be the best it has to it has to be like all these um so at my podcast i've had probably over 150 guests and every i, I want to like leverage everybody and so for the heels uh the first i used to coach it so it's kind of like this at cedarville and this is the beauty of cedarville right here is you were coached but you weren't hyper coached in the sense of like and Coach Scott was a great example of this in the sense that he didn't really coach my tech, but he also knew I didn't want to be coached technically, so he just let it laid off. But even, I, I don't know, like I didn't feel like uh, my gist was that you weren't, or especially in the weight room, like, I, I should just say in the weight room particularly, I remember being shown some stuff and actually instantly being like, that's not the right way. But then I wasn't like actually coached on technique, but that, I think that was a good thing. So. I'll take you to my junior year where I jumped my PR of seven feet in high jump. And this was, I made like insane. I, I, maybe this was before you came then because my senior year was a little bit of a rough one. There's a lot of lessons I learned there. But I realized my junior year, I just needed to start squatting more because the year before I was obsessed with power cleans and that was well and good. But then when you're first meet, you go jump six one. When you've jumped six eight in high school, even though you maxed out your power clean, you realize something's wrong. And mm. so I was just thinking about boots. Sarah talks a lot about ratios, clean to squat, all this stuff. And even and the weight room isn't that. I mean, and the weight room wasn't even the biggest part of my whole deal. There was a lot of other things that I improved and needed to improve. But I remember when I was squatting, it just felt good. And this is key: is we don't. This industry is so whole. Like we don't rely on our intuition enough. Coaches don't do enough themselves. They don't get into enough movements. They don't feel enough movements. They don't challenge mm. themselves to. Be by other people about movements we just say okay this is what the nsca says i believe them they're pretty good and we'll just leave it at that and so i i, I remember this is how i squatted though is this is what felt good to me was basically fairly narrow stance pressure on the balls of the feet knees go fairly far forward feel like there's a lot of tension kind of through the quads a little bit and keep a somewhat upright torso that's just mm -hmm. what felt good but yet 
three years later when I'm doing the curriculum for Wilmington College, I reading the, and I I'm going through the NSCA books. I'm trying to do my due diligence. I'm trying to you know check all my you know I, I did it largely through strength and science uh, was it uh, science and practice by Zatorsky. That was my main text, but I also use the NSCA text. And mm-hmm. so I have I'm like okay knees out to the side, go through the heels like da da da. And I'm and I'm doing this myself too because I'm like oh this is the way like so this is when I'm 24, 25, 26 squatting like this myself mm-hmm. and what i found this just doing this myself and i'll get to where i started to invoke some experts um in my realm was i got a lot stronger in the weight room but i started to notice stride length was down my high jump approach was it was 70 when i was jumping seven feet and now here it is at 67 when i'm coaching at wilmington stronger than i've ever been still training with athletes still pretty good at a lot of stuff but stride length is less what's going on um hmm. and so and my triple jump was worse too, like lots of stuff like that. And so, and I can tell you why that made it worse in just a second. So get to Cal, start coaching there. Someone passes me an article written by Zig Ziglar, who was a post on my show. He, first person I've ever, um, someone on Facebook messaged me this. Hey, what do you think of this article? This guy's like, don't squat through your heels. When you squat through your heels, basically I think he said it, it like locks out your tibia or does some a twisting your tibia that's bad. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think, and it's gonna hurt your knees. And I didn't, at the time, really think it was gonna hurt your knees. I just was like, oh whatever. Um, but but one thing he said that was really that really got me and struck me. And Zig's a very intelligent individual and has helped, you know, his thoughts have helped me a lot. Was <laughs> we aren't made to operate on a peg leg. And as soon as you squat through the heel, you are basically neurologically sending the signal to your body in a jump-related motion that you're not going to push through the forefoot. Or aka, mm. you're not going to pronate because you have mm. to get to the forefoot to pronate. So basically, you are going through a similar motion to jumping as a fairly athletic movement of sorts, even though a deep squat isn't really necessarily true specific. But let's just say even a half squat. Um, so you're going to give the body something that's similar to jumping, but now you're going to trick it by saying, don't go to your forefoot. So what's going to happen to stride length? It's going to go down. What's going to happen? And and then I started to look at all these athletes at Cal, these track sprinters, the guys who had been um, doing a lot of weightlifting through high school and formally trained. The very cerebral, I will I will do what coach says. I'm going to do very mindful of it. Versus the people who probably hadn't lifted, just more natural athletes. And you could just see the difference in vertical jumps, power off the forefoot of these people who have been trained through their heel. And so... Essentially, you're just neurologically telling yourself when it's time to explode to revert to heel. Hmm. I know why people say go through heels because the heel is the sensory um, link to the posterior chain, but that's it's just sensory. That means you could use it more in maybe a rehabilitation setting. I could see you saying it on the way down in squatting, maybe, but I wouldn't use that. Um, so basically, you're it's it's not that far off to put things simply. It is not that far off from telling Nathalie to jump through their heels. Um, it's so from as far as the body and its interpretation is concerned and eventually because lifting is a very high survival threat based movement it's going to really impact the body from a neural imprint because this is heavy weight we need to adapt to this to not die and survive and thrive mm-hmm. and if you're telling people through their heels you're just going to tend to see negative um, interference there so yeah that would be my long short answer on that one <laughs> well it makes sense <laughs> Yeah. It makes sense to me. Like like you said, I think there's a time and a place for it. Um, for for a lot of youth athletes that I work with who uh, don't know how to control their weight or control their body, like I think it's good to to 
to cue in different ways to maybe say like, hey, try shifting your hips back, try getting an even placement of weight on your heels sometimes, right? So there, I, I think there's a time and a place, but like you said, uh, if you want somebody to be able to jump as high as possible and they're putting all their weight through their heels, then they're not going to be able to jump as high as, as potentially they could, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I do cue, if I cue things, if I, and this is what Zig said, and this is kind of what I follow, is you need to have a tripod, so you need to have your heel in contact with the floor, your big mm -hmm. ball, the big ball, the little toe. But then I just see, I just let athletes just go on their own from there. And unless I see something that's, I would consider extremely wrong, <laughs> I tend not to say anything and try to let them self-organize. And if their heel's coming up, I'll usually just put a block under their, a little like wedge under their heel, rather than trying to get the, force them into that at that point. That's, but that's just how I tend to roll with it. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, like jumping, especially for, let's say, tall athletes like basketball. Like if you're trying to teach them to squat all the time with their heels down, like that's not the way most people jump in like in the game, right? Like if you're if you're setting up for like a jump ball or if you're going up for a rebound, it's it's almost going to be more like a hinge than a true squat or like a deep squat anyway. So doing a ton of heavy squatting for jump athletes, I'm not even sure is always an, uh, a good use of, of programming. So, but I guess that's another story. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that could be a different, um, that, yeah, that could be a big question if we went to, wanted to go into it. Maybe if we have time at the end, I guess. <laughs> awesome. So let's jump into the next one. So number two, knees can't go over toes and squatting. Yeah, no, that's a, that's that's one that another one that in going through the NSCA guidelines, um, mm -hmm. which I myself and well that kind of propagates to there's a few things that I think that really can hurt athletes. This is one that okay, so I hope I hope I'm not like kind of making leaps where I shouldn't, but a good example of this would be a lot of people are familiar with Mark Ripito and Starting Strength, very popular, very popular book. Mark is a big um, uh, guy who's very he's very big on the low bar back squat which mm -hmm. is a very sit-back-oriented movement. Um, they just opened starting strength here in Dallas. They got their oh. first location. Yeah, I just drove past it the other day. So Sorry, nice. didn't mean to cut you off. No, no worries, no worries. Um, but someone had told me, and I, there's just two things that I think about that that make sense to me. And One is that Mark, I believe, had squatted 600, but his vertical was only 20 inches. And... Mark is also very, um, if you ever listen to him, he's, 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 he's a big curmudgeon about the potential of people to increase their vertical jump. He's like, you might be able to increase it by two or three inches, but no more. And I think to myself, well, yes, if you low bar back squat and your whole paradigm is sitting back so you can't load the forefoot and you can't put the pelvis in a position, like when someone does a vertical jump, the knees are going to go over the toes. Try doing a vertical jump without putting your knees over your toes in a standing it's not you're not going to jump for you i don't know if you're going to be able to get up off the ground much at all it just doesn't work <laughs> uh, it just does not work and i can get into some more biomechanical details but i mean if you watch just very simply go watch the nfl combine verticals or anything like that and usually you're going to see something the following is the person will descend to the bottom with the knees not necessarily really traveling forward but as soon as they go to jump and force redirects as soon as they move they start to pronate is those knees will push forward 
Um, so you're, you'll notice those knees pushing forward as the athlete gets onto their forefoot and explodes upwards. So if you're just constantly operating this paradigm of sit back, sit back, sit back, well, one, you're being to be unathletic. Two is you are, uh, as, as Taleb would say, you're being fragile rather than anti-fragile because you're not exposing the knees to any sort of stress that's going to help them to build themselves stronger. And so I, Ben Patrick, knees over toes guys on my show, uh, he's taking tons of people out of knee pain by intentionally taking the knees forward as far as you can. And mm. same thing with uh, Ido Portal. If you look at Ido Portal's stuff, uh, we trained Conor McGregor, big movement guy. Guy, I look at his work a lot, especially with what I'm doing now. Is he'll have people like do bear calls on the other, the back of their hands, and and these like almost quote unquote painful places because he wants them to be robust. Because I mean, you should ideally be able to intentionally move your body anywhere. You should not be afraid of any range intentionally. It's when you unintentionally go somewhere that, mm. and you don't have the strength for it, that a problem could be created. But Ben said something that was super profound, and that is basically this. And this is what I became, and that's why it really resonated with me. Is he's like, I train, this is for basketball, but I think it could be almost for any sport in some senses. I go feet first, then knees, then hips in order of importance, because modern strength and conditioning is a hips first paradigm. And honestly, it's a hip and low back paradigm if you really look at it and you look how lifts tend to be coached and operated. So then what you get is an athlete who is super strong through the hips and low back. They probably are in a little bit of anterior tilt because that's what happens when you lift too heavy for a long time and without being mindful of it. And then you start to get this place where the tissues of your Achilles, ankles, feet, and knees might become weaker. You never allowed them to become stronger. Mm -hmm. And now you're operating under a paradigm that's just hip power. And now you fundamentally change as an athlete. And that happened to me big time as an athlete in my late 20s and early 30s. Um, and I like 180 that. And I, I just for reference sake, I didn't I, I the last year I dunked a basketball, I think was 31, 32 or somewhere in there. And that that was at the heart of like a lot of powerlifting and all that stuff. Gave that up and then 35, 36. Here I am. I barely lift. I lift a fraction of what I used to do a ton of natural play movement, all the stuff I've learned. And I dunk. Um, you know, dunk uh, probably almost better than I could uh, four or five years ago. So, and mm -hmm. I'm able to now, and it's not hard. And you understand just how the body works. So, um, yeah, that's my my take on that one. Yeah, I think when when you're not spending a lot of time uh, focusing on the feet, like uh, the way kind of I explain it to clients is that your feet are uh, are communicating with the ground, right? So if you're not starting with the feet first, then it's going to be really difficult for your body to to have a conversation with the ground and athletics really comes down to like ground top ground contact time ground contact force and um yeah if you can't have that conversation because your feet don't know the language then tough so and i think a huge part of that is um sorry uh i just thought of like uh, the, the moment that I understood when the knees should go over the toes, because like I was, I was drinking the Kool-Aid early on, like, okay, like squatting knees can't go over toes. Like I'm like a few of my professors were contributors to the NSCA book. So I was like, oh, okay, these guys know. So in class, I'm like learning this. And I'm like, this is while I'm at Baylor. And I'm like, okay, like, all right. And then watching someone do a, uh, a standing long jump. Like you said, as soon as they start moving forward, those knees are going way over the toes. And I'm like, okay, well, if it doesn't make sense 
to squat with knees over the toes, then why are we using the standing broad jump or the standing long jump as a tool? Like we're training them not to do that, but then we're testing them to see if our training's working by making them do something that they're not supposed to do. And I was like, okay, this is, this is not making sense. Like I got to figure this out. So yeah, like when it comes to that and then seeing these basketball players go, go up for a uh, rebound or go up for the jump ball. Um, it's like, all right, there's, there's got to be more to it than just knees can't go over toes. I think a lot of it comes down to those who are writing the texts came from like powerlifting only background. Like maybe they played a little bit of high school sports, probably didn't play in college, and then continued to lift. All they were doing was powerlifting, right? Maybe not even any Olympic lifting. And so. Um, yeah, I think the idea was like, I forgot who said it, but, um, this is one of the things that I heard early on in my strength and conditioning career. And that was, uh, be on your heels in the weight room and on your toes on, in, in the sport, whatever you're playing. And I was like, okay, but why are we, <laughs> yeah, like, why are we, why are we differentiating? Like if the goal is to is to get as much as possible out of the weight room so that it's beneficial for the sport, then why are we like the feet? In other words, the feet don't matter that much. So you can do one thing over here and another thing over here and that's fine. And I was like, I don't know about that. I just don't know about it. So that's another one, man. Like it's still super prevalent and, uh, yeah, like looking at, uh, material that, they're even currently using for a lot of different certifications, like entry level certifications. It's still like do like when lunging, squatting, whatever the case may be, do not let the knees track over the toes. It's like, well, why not? Like, why not? And like you said, if it's helping people get out of pain, like we really need to reevaluate that as an industry in general. But we'll we'll see if that happens anytime soon. Yeah, I think it's actually turning from my circles. I feel like it's turning fairly fast. Uh, I mean, oh, of course, good. I'm, I'm maybe I'm out of touch with a lot of. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Know, I just know who I follow, you know, and who tags me and what, and who I see people, you know, catching on to Ben Patrick stuff. And I think, it, it even even in my own colleagues, you know, it seems to be pretty well accepted. So I, I feel like it's it's getting there. I'm sure it will continue to proliferate. Yeah. No. I every once in a while I'll see posts by like. Uh, Brett Contreras or other big names in the industry talking about how like, no, like you, you, if you're going to deep squat, if you're going to do it, then your knees have to go over your toes. Like, so it's, there's still the, the whole thing about, you know, weight in the heels, but at least we're making some progress on knees over the toes. So <laughs> yeah. it's getting there. It's all it's getting there. It, it takes time, man. It takes time. So number three, Knees coming inwards in jumps is bad and must always be corrected. So, um, before we jump into that, uh, I had Ambrose Coleman on, a, you know, a couple couple weeks ago just to hear his perspective on that idea. Um, a lot of what he does is uh, like rehab for ACL injuries, and most of those, if not all of those injuries, occur from excessive knee valgus where the knees are are coming way, way in, the arches are collapsing, the ankles are collapsing, there's this medial knee deviation, and at some point, boom, 
the ACL is just like, hey, I'm checking out. We're done here. So, um, so I had him on to kind of have, you know, have his perspective. But from a performance standpoint, I want to hear your perspective on this as well. So, hit it. Yeah. For- yeah, for sure. So this is a big one. Um, like I told you before we start recording, this has been a personal interest of mine. I'm writing a two-part article series on it. The second one, the first one, which was some basic concepts, and the second is I'm basically collecting, um, I'm mining data from all my field of experts to make sure that I'm as, um, I'm putting out as good of information as I can. There always exists the mentality of, oh, what we're doing is broken. Well, let's go all the way the other way. Um, the pendulum or the bandwidth is always somewhere in the middle. I will say this first is, in, do, in working for this second article, um, well, so Tim Hewitt's a big name in the whole ACL deal, and, and he was the first person when I was in grad school at lacrosse, he gave us a presentation on uh, his program, which was basically, oh, look at this girl's knees clacking together when she's shooting a free throw. And of course, so if your knees are click clacking, getting bruises, that's probably not a good thing, okay? Like, there's a bandwidth, okay? Um, but then his solution is, well, everyone's just going to jump with no medial travel at all which then I'll, I'll get to that in a minute of the negativity of that because it ties into the biomechanics of the body. And I'm a big, bio, let's start with biomechanics and let's start with the innate function. I mentioned Tim Hewitt because he had research and I was, I, again, I said I was in the biomechanics lab where we did a lot of this work. I wish I had the reference right now because I was, I was because, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I was going to include it in my second article, which was basically a counterpoint suggesting that something that Tim Hewitt put out where this valgus is a contributor there is research in scholastic workout that would suggest that it is not significant. I'll explain why here as I get through this answer. I think that it's very easy to be reductionist in this field to say x equals, you know, x equals z. I don't think the body is that simple. I don't mm-hmm. think it's just oh, your knee and by the way too, I also think this is just my definitions and some definitions of my colleagues is not I think it's easy to paint everything as knee valgus when there's to me it's there's knees in or there's a valgus moment. Uh, so let me start there. Uh, knees in, which this is the good, natural, and normal function that everybody does who is a any halfway decent athlete. Michael Jordan, like any pro, you watch pro athletes, pro basketball, anybody who is athletic, Olympic weightlifters, anyone who is athletic does this. So you can't put your head in the sand and ignore it. This is common human nature. I do this. I watch all my old videos and I do this crazy and I've never had any knee ligamentous problems in my life. And I've done I swear, I've probably done more hurdle hops than just about anybody. I, I, I've done uh, probably a million plyometric contacts. So, I, you know what? If ACL should have exploded, it should be mine because if you look at my old videos. I mean, I'm like and, – and so this is knees in. This is the good knees in. Is it, also, it all is a function of pronation and supination. So most people – and you, I think you were mentioning that either on the show or before. So pronation is vilified. We tend, no, pronation is essential. You have to pronate to supinate. It's this infinity yeah. of elastic energy return. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is it becomes a problem when you're over pronating, when you are stuck, when you aren't getting out of that pronation properly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that becomes a problem. But that does take a little skin in the game to fully understand. You have to watch athletes. You have to observe them. You have to say, yeah. okay, look, here's your, here's your – and it's all about timing. And my mentor, Adarian Barr, he's right on the money. We as a community want simple cause and effect exercises. This is wrong. Here's an extra. Your knee is going in. Here's some clamshells to fix it. You know, we want that stuff because it's yeah. easy. It's like super easy. Uh, That's exactly fact- what, what Ambrose was talking about as an issue with the industry is if you're going to make 
a correction with excessive knee valgus or excessive medial knee deviation, throwing a band around your legs and doing some clamshells or doing some lateral band walks is not going to fix it. That is like the, it's the biggest cop out. Like, oh, we just need to do this. Like, no, that doesn't take care of it. So sorry, just wanted to say like, there's, there's probably a whole lot more overlap in what you guys actually believe because he, he totally agrees. And I don't want to, I don't want to defend his position, unfortunately, right here. Like that's, Sure. We'd have to get, we'd have to get all of us on, which would be awesome, I'm sure. So, but essentially, what what he was saying is like if if he could grade it like a one through five, like I think he said like if you're a four or a five on that one to five uh, of excessive pronation, like if you're one two three, like that's normal, that's ideal, that's that's how the body moves. Like we we talk about hinge joints being like flexion and, and extension base. Like you have to have both. Well, when it comes to like the arch of the foot, the ankle, the knee, like there's a, there's three dimensional aspects going on there. It's not as simple as, you know, like keeping everything locked into place. The body doesn't, uh, the body doesn't do very well with just keeping things locked into place. There's gotta be flex. So in fact, we were just talking about this the other day. Um, a house that's lived in will last much longer than a house that's not lived in because, and this was a concept that I learned from my grandfather who was a carpenter and built houses and churches. Um, a house that's lived in like flexes and moves with the people who live in it. And that actually allows it to, to have an extended life, but a house that's just there and there's nobody that lives in it, like, that thing falls apart real quick. So um, we were kind of discussing that idea as it relates to the human body. Like it, if the body can move that way, it should probably be trained that way. And that was one of the first things that he and I discussed when I moved down here to Dallas um, back in like 2012. Like uh, if the body, if the body can get in that position, maybe then that should be trained. So I jumped in there, cut you off. I'm so sorry. Continue. Good. I like the house example. Um, makes me feel better being in California and earthquake country. So, <laughs> uh, so well, what's good? Um, so me and Adarian Barr, I think I was actually the first person to say this. Uh, well, let me, let me just take it from here. So you pronate when you pronate it, uh, it starts a chain reaction. Tibia internally rotates, femur internally rotates, mm -hmm. uh, stretch loads, the glutes, opens the pelvic floor to accept the viscera down to the pelvic bowl, which in supination, everything reverses. Um, so then the glutes, that band snaps back, you push off, the viscera shoots back up, and you propel forward. This is essential. This is, this is part of knees in. So again, as opposed to valgus, this is knees in. And this is the thing you see in all elite athletes. For the, I mean, pretty much. The only reason you wouldn't would be, and it's a little bit of pelvic orientation. And so... I'll get into that in a second. Okay, so valgus would be, uh, and I, Pat Davidson wrote a really cool article that was illuminating that really sparked a lot of my interest in this. Uh, it was called Knees In For The Win, and it was on squatting, and it was just showing just that, elite Olympic lifters, knees tick in on the way up, they do this thousands, hundreds of thousands of times a year, and no knee problems, you know, no problem. Um, and he was linking it to the gait cycle. The way down in the squat is supination, you're on the outsides of your feet. The way up, you're gonna pronate, as you pronate, the direction of the tibias will mirror where you're, you're kind of on this inside edge of your foot, so the tibias are going to mirror that. 
And so I, I call this like the upside down Y because I feel like that sweet spot is when you look at, let's say, a bilateral jump, a drop jump, uh, anything like that, you'll see the feet are in a kind of inside edge manner. So they're a little more pronated. And this is at this like kind of mid stance load position uh, when the body is extending load. And then the tibias will point towards each other, kind of like a triangle. And then you will have the femurs facing up fairly perpendicular. And that's why I get the Y, because if you go too far, it's not really as much of a Y anymore. And that's where that you're developing that eye to say, okay, maybe this is a problem. Um, and then, but the key is then bandwidth. Well, what what's, uh, what's good, what's bad? And then there's a lot more there. And so what I, well, the direction I'm going is this, is feet and hips. Um, if your pelvis is an anterior tilt if you're, and you're not reciprocal, meaning you can't go back and forth, and actually we have video, so you can see my hands. Yes, it's a pelvis and it's going back and forth. Mm -hmm. If you're an ant stuck there and you're not reciprocal, then you're in a very interior, when you have people in anterior tilt, they have a lot of IR, a lot of internal rotation, and not as much external rotation. So, and they also tend to get, so they tend to get slammed forward very quickly into that uh, internal rotation, full range, forward motion. And by just by tipping that pelvis back, not even messing with anything else, uh, you can tend to see some change there versus someone who's posteriorly tilted, their knees are going to be out more. They're going to have mm -hmm. trouble getting in, uh, internal rotation. And then, so they have kind of the opposite problem. Uh, and then you can also look at pronate properly, supinate properly, all that kind of thing. Um, so I do think it's a bandwidth. I would say like if I watch athletes, uh, to me, it's nine to, to 15 times out of 10, or you know, maybe 15 to one, it's fine when you see it show up in athletics. Mm -hmm. But yet, we the other 14, we coach it out of the other 14, which reduces performance. And the chance are the athletes just going to forget it when they go compete, anyways. Their their body's going to do what it needs to get the rebound and make the block and everything right. else that goes with that. So I think it's just very bandwidth specific. But don't coach it out of the 14 to help you know, to, to maybe help the one person that it was potentially going to help. And that's hope, assuming your intervention is correct as it is. Again, not just saying clamshells and not just saying, oh, just don't let your knees go that way. Oh, you know, that's terrible. Like, no, the body's meant to move like that. So we just have to know when it's too much and when we're stuck and we can't get out of it. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of my perspective. Like, if you think this is a black and white issue, then you're probably going to do more harm than good. So there's... There's a whole lot of nuance in there in that in that bandwidth, in that range where you your body's gonna do it in order for for like when you when your brain or when you are telling the brain, this is the task, do whatever you have to do to accomplish it. Like if if you don't understand that in athletics, that's what's going on. Not, okay, I, I have to do this movement perfectly and it, and it has to be in this sequence and I have to do these things. Like when you slow everything down in the weight room, that's not the way that the body's going to utilize that movement pattern or something like it on the field, on the court, on the track while you're playing the sport. So, uh, yeah, you gotta, you have to know not only the demands of the sport, but how the body is going to achieve those demands. And if you're not willing to look at those and then understand that, yeah, there's there's a ton of wiggle room when it comes to the knees tracking in, the knees rotating in, the, the what did you use, the knee in position? Yeah, knee in versus valgus. I just call it, yeah, yeah. health performance-driven knee in. 
You can't I've, get out of it. You're stuck. They're twisting in different directions, Valgus. Gotcha. So I I like that you're differentiating that and not just saying knee valgus is the same as knee and like there's there's a difference. So that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. Like how much is too much? And you kind of went over that. Like a you uh, have I, to you have to watch your athlete. You got to know. Like you have yeah, to pain pain too is the the big highlight. I, I I think it it takes a lot to the point where I would say if it couldn't be easily corrected by a pelvic position or something like that to just put it in an athlete's head. I'm just so mindful to put it in an athlete's head that they are broken. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. if you haven't hurt yet and you don't have pain and I don't know, maybe it looks like you're a little too far. I'm not going to, I don't want to be like, Oh, you know, like wave my finger. Like we do that way too much, way mm-hmm. too much. Industry. And, and, we are constantly being proved wrong as we evolve forward in this industry by this magnificent thing we have called the human body that, you know, the, the subconscious mind, it's like, if you've ever seen those pictures, like this whole screen is the subconscious and this little pinhead is the conscious that we're able to, it's the body's always doing the best it can. And so my paradigm is generally speaking to, if, if I don't know it, like the back of my hand, like I am a hundred percent sure my intuition is just dialed in that. Yes, we need to change this or you will get hurt. And I know coaches like that, like Mike Guadango found the show is like, he's like, I know when an athlete's going to tear their ACL and his stuff mm-hmm. is more, he talks about actually, there's ironically, you said squat on the heels, running the, like just form the balls there. He's like, that's what kills him about football. All the football players are taught to do everything on the balls of their feet. And then that screws them up and then they tear their ACL. <laughs> so it's like, wow. I, I, I just thought it was kind of funny that that's what your professor would teach you to do basically everything wrong. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know. I think there's some situations where being on the ball of your feet is fine. But anyway, so anyways, yes, I, I don't, almost don't even know where I was getting with there. It's just it's just so uh, – oh, yes, I was just saying, like, I am just so careful before I call in a correction or, or tell an athlete that something on them is, is broken or wrong. I mean, we, yes, we want healthy, robust athletes. And for – I mean, I do have some success to my name. Like, our, our men's tennis team last year, I think we went – the whole season pretty much without losing a player to playing time like like a which for tennis is big like i mean i, I think i've evolved my program to where we're doing some really good things and so it's just um yeah I, I just you have to be careful when you tell an athlete there's something wrong with them yes and it's hard to argue with results that's for sure yeah. well it's just one season but you know if i have to again then i'll get back to you so <laughs> consistency is key as they say yeah. so all righty so that was awesome. I'm so glad that we were able to to have that specific uh, topic addressed. So, um, number four, brace the core on everything. So yeah, I should is, say I should. Yeah, okay, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was, oh, I was just gonna say, this is one of those things that's like uh, I catch myself doing quite a bit. Like, and early on, it was always like engage the core, engage the core. Like that was one of my biggest cues, um, and it's it's so easy when you don't know what to say or what to coach or like um, like when I'm working with a group of athletes, then it's different because it's you know it tends to be easier to pick things out. But like if it's a if it's a small group or if it's one on one, and I'm like okay, I got to make sure that I'm uh, coaching here and like man, everything looks good. Like okay, well I just got to say something like all right, just, just you know brace the core, engage the core. Like so that's one of those things that I was like oh, okay, all right. Time for some self-reflection. Am I doing this too much? Am I am I using that as like uh, just like the easiest go-to when I don't know what else to do or or what else to say or whatever the case may be? And then um, yeah, so talk to us a little bit about that and 
and how that can be um, that can negatively affect athletic performance if we're if we're priming that or we're coaching that too much. Yep. Yeah, man. So I was on a similar, I guess, a somewhat similar path to you in the sense of. I know for my slow movements, I used to coach that stuff. I don't know if you know, like, do you know the RKC plank where it's like, turn everything on? You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I remember I remember seeing that like know, eight years ago or something, nine years ago when it came out. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. You can get such huge muscle activation through your whole body. Fantastic. Great. Okay. So then I read an article not too long after that, and this is always in my memory banks, was it was talking about just because you turn a muscle on in a plank does not mean that it's going to stay that way at all when you're moving. So you need to train reflexive strength. And I had a hard time with that article because I didn't know what reflexive strength was. You know, So it made my fear bias turned on, my fear of the unknown bias turned on, and I just kind of tuned it out. I wasn't like coaching my athletes to brace their core on much of anything, just just like a plank or a position really if it was anything. And I don't think that's not going to like hurt you if you do that. I don't uh, not for not for a sagittal plane motion. I don't think that's a bad thing by any means, but I don't coach that. Um, I coach everything I coach is reflexive now, and I'll get into that in a second. The first person to really um, get me like, yeah, bracing the core is dumb, like just light bulb moment was Cal Dietz said, okay, brace your core and try to run a 40 as fast as you can. How fast <laughs> are you going to go? You're going to be terrible. You're going to be yeah. bound up. You're going to be really slow. And I was like, yeah. You're right, Cal. Like, wh- like, why are we doing this stuff? And so then, and uh, I just had a really good podcast with a couple of neurology guys, and basically they were saying the same thing. Look, intentional parts of the body, eyes, hands, feet. Those are the things that with the conscious forebrain is at play, it will show up there. The midline or the trunk is entirely reflexive. And not only that, but it's, 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 I, I find a few layers to this. One is just the general bias of the industry if you are a strength and conditioning professional because Cal posted this on social media he said bracing the core shuts down the nervous system instantly the great divide forms all the hardcore lifting people are like no 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 you're wrong and I'm looking at the people and I usually okay I usually don't waste time on social media like this I I, actually the last three days my wife has had my phone and it's been glorious because hers hers got lost and so it's been glorious. I don't like spending time, but this was one thing I wanted to dig in and spend time going through the thread because I, I'm a student of human nature a little bit and I like to see where people go and come from. And all the people who are pro bracing core are powerlifting, CrossFit, you know, stuff where it's like brace, lockdown, strength. Um, it's like masculine and feminine. Masculine would be the bracing, the rigid, feminine is the free flowing, or masculine is the structure and feminine is the free flow. And we need them both. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is, is, the structure isn't created for the athlete by telling them to consciously brace. Uh, it should be created through just moving. Like what, I don't know, how did Mickey Mantle hit a 700-foot home run 1945? Did he? Did, wasn't he, bracing. No one told him to brace his core. No, I actually yeah. was like, that guy like had a job as a miner, like smashing rocks repeatedly. <laughs> so, yeah. and I don't think he even told him to brace his core while he was doing that. Right. And, and Dick Weck said this too, because I think you'll get this like, I don't know, Paloff press or anything like baseball, even people kind of people will talk about this. Oh, when you're hitting a ball, don't you brace your core at the minute instant that you, no, you don't. You, can your body really react that fast to the ball striking the bat to in that one one thousandth of a second turn your core? Off? Like, no, like no, are you kidding? there's no way it's just pressurization. And so. Um, I'm a very, uh, I just think it has a lot to do with the mindset, like in the mindset of the, the more rigid would be muscles, brace, uh, fight, resist, 
and then the other side is flow. And I'm not saying that this side is wrong. I'm just saying you need to you need to embrace the spirit of both sides. Yes, you need mm-hmm. to be strong enough to do your sport. Your your frame needs to be robust enough. Your muscles need to pull hard enough on the tendons to get animate the skeleton. Like yes, I, I agree with that. But I just think that the sports performance strength and conditioning industry has traditionally been so far to the brace. You know, I okay. Can you? I'm going to teach you to do a skill. Brace like like how many versus. Uh, the sensory system and getting the body to sense and move and move into spaces and letting the subconscious organize it all. So I just I, I just think it's archaic and I think it's going to go out of style real quick and it already is. So that's just my two, two cents. Once, I mean, as this industry evolves and like if all those people doing uh, who were commenting negatively on Cal's thread, like all the powerlifting, crossfitty people were actually playing sports all the time and seeing how far they hit the ball and thinking about what they were doing, they would be out of that camp because it just doesn't work in practice you know yeah like that's one of those things that uh um like as a as a former distance runner like the majority of of training that occurs that non-running training occurs in in endurance athletics is primarily core training um which you know who can define that um but it's it's like you've got to do planks, right? And if you're gonna do planks, you gotta brace. But no one's bracing when they're running an 8K. No one's bracing when they're running a mile. No one's bracing when like so that whole idea of like uh, it's super funny. Like nobody's bracing when they when they do 40s. Um, what's really interesting though is if you've done very very little. Uh, strength training or or any sort of conditioning and then all of a sudden you start doing a lot of sprinting even if it's short sprints 10s 20s 30s 40s the next day you're gonna feel your core so something was happening there and you weren't bracing so explain that one right like all these people who are like no you everything's got to be braced it's like "Ah, but the body you're you can't think about doing that while you're doing an athletic movement, and if you do, like you said, your performance is going to go down. Like the body can't function that way. It's it's not designed to do that. You're not supposed to have to think about that while you're doing things. Um, so, yeah, that's it's another good one, man. So, last but not least, the best way to activate muscles is concentric shortening and squeezing. This is a this is another big one because activation is such a huge a huge buzzword right now and it's been that way for a long time. But how do you uh, how do you know that you're prepping muscles for you know for the workout like during the warm up? Are you doing the right things? You've got to activate. You've got to shorten. You've got to squeeze. You've got to turn all these muscles on in this concentric way before you do this eccentric exercise or this exercise where you're doing all the different types of muscle contraction. So, um, what's the deal there? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't, I don't think I was ever exposed to, I mean, I probably was doing it on some degree. I never really called it activation. I don't think I call it, maybe I did. Um, but, but the more exposed to mainline strength and conditioning I got, the more I was, you know, brought to terms with this thing called activating muscles and all this stuff. And, but (laughs) never helped my performance one bit like i i I, and and it it could just be summed up this way okay so gary ward who's been on my show and i talked about pronation um he has a book called what the foot and i think he he 
talks and explains this beautifully is the sense that okay there is there is i, I there is like levels of isometric pulses that happen in movement just pop 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 like isopulses mm-hmm. but in just in the context let's just say pronation so in pronation pronation happens we have the internal rotation of the tibia femur that stretch loads the glutes and it's that stretch that allows the glutes to contract and so by saying, oh, your glutes are, you have sleepy glutes. Your glutes don't work. Do some hip thrusts. Do some clamshells. Do some this, that. I, I, I'm not nothing, I think Brett Contreras definitely gives to the world with hip thrusts. I, I have nothing wrong with them. I've used them with track sprinters. I think they are good. Um, but I think that if, that it's good if you pronate and your glutes work in an average normal working stride. <laughs> if, and then it can enhance that effect. Mm-hmm. I think if, this is in terms of just performance, human function and performance is, Essentially, a muscle needs to go to a stretch before it can shorten. And so by just making everything pure concentric, we're not really working with the way the body operates, um, which is stretch ranges and stretch loads. And so uh, there's a book that was really, really good, probably the best running book I've ever read, to be completely honest. Absolutely. It was the best in terms of running biomechanics. And it's called Even With Your Shoes On by Helen Hall. Helen is a student of Gary Ward's, and she has a lot of really cool little acronyms. She's very creative. Um, and she has something called from called Wujwum or W U J W U M. And I was like, what's a Wujwum? Well, it's wake up joints <laughs> to wake up muscles. So the mm-hmm. idea that moving your joints move to wake up the muscle, like like Ido Portals, you know, says just move, just move. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not. I, and this again, this is this is a thing where we think we're smarter than the body by saying, you know what, body, you're dumb. That you, <laughs> hey hey body, that is so awesomely designed and our best supercomputers won't be able to match your intelligence until 2050. Oh, but you're dumb because you can't turn on your glute. Well, let me give you this concentric shortening exercise to turn it on for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to give the body what it needs to to naturally allow the muscles to engage, which is the stretching and the shortening. Um, so I, I like it says, like Helen's like, wake up joints to wake up the muscles. And I've found that even in like the one of the things I really like is is like team sports, um, like playing basketball. I always get way warmed up, more warmed up to dunk. And I will always jump the highest for dunking after I play pickup basketball. Every time you can't create or synthesize or formulate a warmth that can do that for you. But playing basketball is a huge amount of different joint movements. You're all the ways you play defense, all the ways you drive your your ankle, he, knee and hip are. Yes, three-dimensional. It's an ultimate three-dimensional move your joints warm up, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what act. That's also what allows the brain to feel safe because you're like re-engaging the sensory map of the body, and the brain mm-hmm. is like, okay, feel safe doing this. I feel safe wiring more power because I'm re-sensing this little subtle um, position in space. And I even I was even on like this breakdancing muse in high school. And I'll tell you what, when I was breakdancing, I was, it enhanced my athleticism because that's the ultimate, like, full body wujbum. You're awake, you're, <laughs> you're and spinning in every direction, and all these muscles are naturally activating. And so to say that we, to try to, like, basically all the, like, the clamshelly stuff is kind of an artificial, to me, it's an artificial man made way to do the same thing. I won't say that I think it's completely useless. I, I know you'll get anecdotes like it was in t- one of Tim Ferriss's books. I think it was Tools of Titans. It was some guy, Peter Atia maybe, or somebody who he was like, yeah, I they, I did all these hip, you know, a, a bunch of these hip abductions and, ad, and and extensions and all this stuff, and my running pain kind of went away. And so I'm not saying that stuff doesn't ever work, 
Um, I just don't think it works with the natural way the body is supposed to operate, which is the direction I'm always heading. I want to know well, what's natural, what's normal, how do we do this better? So, Yeah, it's it comes down to that whole concept of um, if all you have is a hammer, then everything's a nail. Like there's an appropriate time and place for it. Like uh, this is another one of the things that Ambrose says, like muscles basically follow three functions. They uh, They absorb force they generate force and they dynamically stabilize. And if you're not training them to do all of those things, then you're probably not gonna get optimal performance out of it, right? So if all you're doing is teaching a muscle to apply force or to generate force, but you're not teaching it how to absorb force or to like, in other words, to, to go through that full range of motion, but also to be able to stabilize at any point in that range of motion, um, yeah, you're, you're going to end up with everybody having like, <laughs> okay, here's, here's the way I think of it. Like the reason that everybody started doing band work, like clamshells, I think was because of, uh, this idea that, oh, well now everybody's got excessive knee valgus, right? So if we put these bands on and everybody's doing that, then we'll fix that problem. Okay. Well, Maybe that's one end of the spectrum. Even if that was the case where everybody had that issue, now we're pushing them to the other end of the spectrum where, okay, well now we're gonna have the exact opposite become an issue, right? Like like if you drink too much water, that's as bad as drinking not enough water. Like, they, like it all comes back to that idea of bandwidth. Like you, you probably shouldn't be focusing on just concentrics for activation if you're doing movements that require you to do eccentrics and dynamic stabilization, which is athletics. You're doing all of those things. So I think that's pretty yeah, cool. We're going to do that stuff. I mean, and do it. you at least want to do it standing too, in the sense where you have pronation and supination at play. You're accepting load in a normal way through the vertical up, right? To, to dumb mm -hmm. it down even more, lying on my side is, yeah. So and, <laughs> and I think we're improving. You know, I think it's, it's, it's getting better. So I'm an optimist. Yeah. I think in general, like the, uh, the industry is getting better because there's people who actually want to see it be taken seriously because for so long it's been a joke because everybody can just open up a muscle and fitness magazine or like my professor in grad school said, muscle and fiction magazine and whatever it says in there, like, oh, okay, that's the case. Or like anybody can go and and get a certification and now they're an expert and um the people that actually care about the industry progressing and improving and and us understanding the human body better because it is so complex it's infinitely more complex than something like an engine or something like a computer and those things are hard to understand like we don't know the human body yet we've got to keep pushing our level of understanding and knowledge of it so that we can so we can get it so we can actually uh, train it effectively and rehab it effectively and all of that so um, yeah anyway that kind of covers those five things that's that's been extremely entertaining and engaging for me so I yeah thanks for doing that that was super cool um, so yeah one of, the thing I, one of the things I like to do on just about every podcast is give my guest an opportunity to just throw out some 
some advice or uh, a quote that they like or um, and it can be sport related it can be life related so what's a piece of advice um, that you have for anybody who's watching or listening right now yeah sure uh, well I think maybe relevant to the tune of this show I, I with all this stuff I I tend to it's easy to get um, I guess it can be negative to see change not necessarily happening in the sense of you see sometimes I look at how training is done I'm like I can't believe parents are paying for this you know like <laughs> but like, how much money is getting wasted in this kid's time or whatever you know like at the end of the day I, I like uh, I like Gandhi's quotes like be the change you wish to see and so to me that's just be a student of what you do. Be open-minded. Um, the biggest shift that I had to do, what really was happened about in my mid-20s, was this shift where I all of a sudden didn't know it all anymore, and I had to fully start asking other people. And then the second shift was when I started my podcast, and I really had to start fully asking other people. Mm-hmm. And those two things changed were a huge catalyst to change me in ways as a coach that have just been absolutely phenomenal. So I think that the more that... We can, it's just, you know, depart from negative, any sort of negativity, we, we just need to be the best that we can be and go out every day and try to make a change in self, you know, and not say, just be positive, give, give other, you know, your clients and athletes love every day and you be the change yourself. And I think that the world's always going to be a better place when that happens. So that is quote and thoughts for the, on that one. Awesome. That's sweet. So how can people follow you? How can they find you? How can they read your articles and, and get access to um, all the products that you've that you've made, like all the books that you've written and stuff like that? Yeah. So, yeah, just fly sports. Uh, if you Instagram, Twitter, website, uh, I have a new book, Speed Strength, that's out. That's um, encapsulates a lot of these things, including my own big paradigm shifts in the world of speed training and power training for athletics and things like that. And uh, yeah, justlifesports.com, which many of your own articles can be found on, Kevin. So extra incentive for anyone listening to pop up. The nutrition section is popping, thanks to Kevin Kuhn. So that's where you can find me. Awesome. Joel, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, dude, this, is, this has been incredible. Um, so again, thank you so much. And everybody out there, go like Joel's stuff, go follow him and... Uh, you will definitely learn something. So he's always, always pushing the envelope um, with regards to being open-minded and learning new stuff. And I really appreciate that. So um, stay tuned for this next episode. I'll drop next week. Alrighty. Adios.